Welcome and good morning, Church Project. How's everybody doing this morning? You doing all right? Good, good. Um, as uh, uh, was just said, my name is Todd Welch. I'm the pastor of uh, Waypoint's Faith Community here in Greeley. Uh, we're one of your uh, sponsors or one of your uh, partners, I guess that was the word I was looking for. And uh, our church meets at night. We do Tuesday and Friday nights uh, because we like to sleep in on a Sunday morning. Uh, and we like to watch the Denver Broncos, but since they got a bye week, I'm here. Uh, and so... We're all good, but uh, hey, uh, I'm excited to be with you, excited to kind of uh, share God's uh, word with you uh, this morning, so thank you for allowing me to be a part. A few weeks ago, Aaron uh, started this uh, journey uh, through the book of Acts, uh, and uh, it's an incredible firsthand narrative uh, of the first church and how the church began. It's written by Luke. Uh, it's his uh, part two to his gospel. It's his Empire Strikes Back to his Star Wars. And, uh, and uh, so he begins to tell uh, the story of the church. It just continues, right? The gospel ends and Acts just picks up directly after that. And, you know, some scholars actually believe that there's a part three, uh, that it was the first trilogy, uh, that Luke actually wrote his Return of the Jedi, but uh, it's been lost or it never happened. Um, but uh, so th- that's why it kind of ends a little abruptly, the book of Acts. Uh, that's according to some scholars. But so far, Aaron has unpacked for us over the last couple of weeks Jesus spending time with his disciples after Easter, right? After the resurrection, uh, Jesus comes and he spends 40 days with his disciples. He hangs out with them. He teaches them. He encourages them. Most importantly, he tells them, here's what you do now, right? Here's the mission. Here's what you're going to do. And there's a couple of verses when he really unpacks this. Matthew 28, for example, he says in verse 18, he says, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make the disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you, and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, right? And so Jesus gives them the mission. Okay, guys, now that I've conquered death, now that I've raised uh, from the dead, uh, here's your mission. Here's what you're going to do as my followers. Uh, And then he says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, You will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What I love about that, he says, you will be my witnesses. Not that you might be, not that you could be, but that you will and the truth is, one of the things we're wrestling with at, at Waypoints, we're going through First Peter, and one of the things we're really wrestling with is, look, we are his witnesses no matter what. Because the truth is, people are watching how we live our lives. And when you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you're basically putting a giant spotlight on you, and you are saying, watch me to know if Jesus is real. Watch me, see how I live, see how I act, and know that Jesus is real. We're the evidence. We're the proof, we're the reality of whether or not Jesus is real. And my friends, we have 7 billion people on this planet, and most of them want to know the answer to the question, is Jesus real? And they're looking to you. Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. And they're looking to you to see whether or not there is evidence that Jesus is real. And by our actions and our reactions, we're either drawing people closer to Jesus or we're actually pushing them away. Because the truth is, we represent Jesus. We are his witnesses. So Jesus gives his disciples and us our mission. 
You are witnesses. Now go. Go do it. Go out and, and spread this good news. And then, uh, in the verses Aaron shared with us last week, Jesus leaves. It, it, it says he's taken on this cloud, and, and he is taken up to heaven. And the disciples just kind of, the scriptures tells us, the disciples stand there and they just watch until they can't see him anymore. And they must have been there so long that God had to send two angels. And these two angels just appear like, what are you doing? He said, go, right? It's like, come on, guys, let's, let's get moving. You can't just stand here. We got something to do, right? And so go, right? Remember, Jesus told us before and after the resurrection, look, I've got to go so that the Holy Spirit can come, right? The Holy Spirit has to come, so I got to get out of here, right? Now, that hasn't happened yet. That doesn't happen until next week, Acts chapter 2. So we've got these verses right here from the time that they got a crick in their neck from staring to the Holy Spirit coming. We've got a section that I want to wrestle through this morning, all right? So we're going to be in Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 12, and we'll go to the end of the chapter. So I'd love it if you just follow along. If you didn't bring your Bible, maybe get on that Version app on your smartphone and follow along. We'll be reading out of the ESV uh, today, so if you uh, want to follow along, that'd be awesome. But would you do me a favor? Would you just join me in prayer as we just kind of prepare to dive into these new verses today? Lord Jesus, we thank you that all of your word is inspired, that every word is used to teach us and to shape us and mold us, that every word is your love letter to us. And so, Father, as we come and we read this word, may it truly be that double-edged sword in our lives. May it help uh, sharpen us and shape us into who you created us to be. So, Father, may your spirit just fall in this place right now as we read your word. And may the words jump off of the page and into our heart and transform the way that we live. Lord, we love you. It's in your precious name that we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right. So Acts chapter 1, here we go, starting in verse 12. And let, let me tell you, um, I am not a preacher, I'm a teacher. And, and so what I like to do is I, I like to teach the scriptures as we go. So I'm going to kind of start and stop. So you want to kind of keep your finger there in the scriptures because I, I want to make sure that we're all tracking as we kind of walk through these verses here a little bit. So uh, uh, verse 12 says this, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All these, one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. All right, push pause just for a second there, right? So we're 40 days after Easter. Jesus just left. They're gathered in the upper room. Don't know if it's the same upper room. Maybe it is. Maybe it's not. We don't really know. Uh, and Luke lists out who's all gathered there, right? We've got the 11 apostles, right? We've got them all except for, for Judas. Uh, but it's the same list that he gives us in Luke chapter 6. But notice the order has changed, right? Now he begins with the most prominent of the apostles, Right? It's Peter and John and James. Because most of the disciples are going to disappear from the New Testament after this verse. It's, it's just going to be those ones who become very prominent, the focus of Luke's 
message that, that stay, right? These three plus Paul, really, okay? I also want us to notice that the women are mentioned. Now, there's just this group of women and then Mary, the mother of Jesus. The group of women is most likely this group that keeps being referred to throughout the Easter message. Um, and I just want you to know, guys, women played a very important role in the early church, extremely important, not just in, in service, but in spreading of the gospel and leadership. And, and this was just so unheard of in this culture and in this time period. Uh, and this is the last time we're going to see Mary, the mother of Jesus in Scripture. Uh, I love the fact that not only did she give birth to her son, but she is also assisting to give birth to the church. And I, I just think that's awesome. Uh, and so Luke tells us that Jesus' brothers are there. They're going to be important leaders in the church as you continue your journey through Acts. All right, so unpause. Verse 15, it says this. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand. By the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in his ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle of all, <laughs> in the middle, and all of his bowels gushed out. Thank you, Scripture, for being so descriptive. That's awesome. Good morning. Uh, it became unknown to all the inhabitants of, of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akel Adam, uh, that is, the bl- a field of blood. Verse 20, for it is written in the book of Psalms, may he camp, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day which he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. All right, let's stop there. Let's just push pause. Okay, first, we kind of see how big the church is, right? Roughly about 120 people, roughly you know, uh, us here in this room. And, and Peter stands up and he acknowledges Judas's betrayal and Judas's death. It wasn't a pretty death at all. You know, sometimes the scriptures are way too descriptive and sometimes they're not descriptive enough. Has anybody else noticed that? It's like, that's too much information and I would like some more information over here. We'd never get it. All right. Uh, and then Peter quotes Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, both of these passages speaking about false companions speaking about uh, wicked men who become the enemies of God's righteousness, and he puts Judas right there in the camp. Now, maybe Peter made this connection himself, and maybe Jesus made this connection during the 40 days he was teaching them. We don't really know. Um, but one point is clear. He says, we need to replace Judas. That's, that's where he's getting at. We need to replace him, which in my mind brings up a couple of questions. And I don't know if you do this when you're reading the scriptures, but when I'm reading the Bible, I like to ask who, why, what, where. You know, I like to just pause and ask questions, uh, and then I try to find the answers. And, and, and as I'm, I'm reading this, man, I, I just stop and I just say, why do you have to pick someone else, right? I mean, just why do we need to pick somebody, first of all? And then who are they going to pick? Well, first of all, Peter lists out the second answer. He says, the person that we're going to pick has to meet two qualifications. 
First, it has to be a person who has been with us the entire time. From Jesus' baptism in, in John the Baptist's ministry to Jesus' ascension. And when he says that, I'm like, not all of the 12 apostles even meet this quota. What, I mean, that is, that is a huge quota. Why, why is that a requirement? Because not even the 12 meet that. That's crazy. And then uh, he, he says that this person must have witnesses Jesus' resurrection. They had been around when Jesus rose from the dead. And that is so important, Right? Because it is Jesus' resurrection, which is the power of the gospel, right? It's the whole message. And so Peter's like, hey, if somebody else is going to become part of the 12, that person needed to have seen Jesus walking around, eating with us, joking with us, teaching with us to say, hey, it's real, right? He needed to be a firsthand witness. So the who, they have to meet these two qualifications. But the answer to why do you need 12 in the first place, that's actually a harder question, did Jesus tell them that they needed 12? We don't have any record of that other than him picking 12 in the first place. So why did they feel like they needed to replace him? Uh, we, we really don't know. Maybe it was because 12 is such an important number to the Jewish people, right? They got the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles. They're supposed to be the witnesses to Israel first and then out, and they needed 12. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's just... Human wisdom that Peter's like, hey, we're missing one. We need somebody else, right? You know, it's like you're pick, uh, doing a pickup game of basketball and you only got four. You're like, hey, I need, I need somebody else, right? And you just got to fill the team. I, maybe it's just human wisdom. Maybe, maybe it was Jesus and he said that. But to be honest, we don't see 12 being a requirement. And when James dies a little bit later here in Acts, not to be the spoiler alert for, for the day, uh, when he dies, they don't replace him. So we're not sure why 12 at this point was just so important. Was it human or was it divine? We're not exactly sure, all right? So let, let's keep going. Unpause the button. Verse 23, it says this. They put forward to Joseph called uh, uh, Bar Sabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. They prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take place in this ministry and the apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. All right, pause. Uh, okay, so we have two men who are completely qualified in every way. I mean, they, they, they can, they, either one of them can do this job. So what do they do, right? You got 11, and you can't have 13, so you got to pick, right? You, you got to select somebody. So what do they do? They cast lots. And our first question is, well, what the heck is that, right? The practice of casting lots is actually mentioned about 70 different times between the, uh, in the Old Testament, roughly about seven times in the New Testament. So what is it? Well, casting lots is a lottery, right? It's a game of chance. It's like rolling the dice. And they used it to determine the will of God. And, and there was a variety of ways they did it. They, they used uh, sticks with varying uh, various lengths. They used dice. They used different colored objects. The most famous and most widely used was actually used by the high priest. Uh, and it was, they had two stones, the high priest had um, wore on him this breastplate, called the breastplate of judgment, uh, on him, and, and it had a little bit of a pocket in the back. 
And the breastplate represented the 12 tribes of Israel, and, and he had this little pocket. And any time they needed to seek out God's will, he would pray and he would ask God. Uh, and um, as, as he was praying, he would pull out either the Urim or the Thuim, uh, and it was either a yes or a no, or option A or option B. And uh, some traditions said that one of them would glow. Uh, some traditions say one of them was hot to the touch, and some traditions just go, well, it was just random. Whichever one he kind of pulled out of there, that was kind of how it went, right? I, and that's just, it just seems so weird to us, right? I mean, this is just, this is just crazy. And, and we've all been guilty of just taking the Bible, flipping it open, and saying, Jesus, talk to me, right? And we find some random verse, and we're like, um, that makes no sense, right? Uh, yeah, there, there's a reason why that absolutely makes no sense, Right? But, but here they are, right? This is the tradition. So they go through prayer, they'd ask God's will, and then they would ask God to work in this random game of chance. And it seems so strange to us because we've got the Holy Spirit. We've received the Holy Spirit. We have God's word that helps us determine God's will for our life and the situations that we face. But what they have? Nothing. The Holy Spirit hasn't come they don't have the written word of God, at least the New Testament-wise. Uh, they, no, they, did, they didn't have their version app on their phone. They, they, people didn't have Bibles. The printing press wasn't created, right? They, they didn't have any options. I mean, you and I use the Holy Spirit. You and I use wise counsel. You and I use the word of God to make our decisions. But they didn't. And in fact, if we look at our world today... Most people make the same sort of decision uh, or go through the same decision process that they did. Well, kind of whatever feels good, whatever random chance happens to be, whatever looks fun, whatever is exciting, they make their decisions that way. But you and I are supposed to be different. The decisions that we make are supposed to be based upon Scripture and based upon the leading of the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't blame them for praying and then casting their lots. They're doing the best that they can. And in fact, the Old Testament actually teaches, Proverbs 16, verse 33, it actually says this, we may roll the dice, but the Lord determines how they fall. Yeah, don't pray that when you're in Vegas next time. That's probably not not really going to work, right? But the disciples prayed and then they cast lots, believing and knowing, and we got a big God, so I have no doubts believing that God can affect these games of chance. And so that's, that's how they did it before the Holy Spirit. They, they would pray, and then they would cast lots. And so that's what they did. The disciples, the, the 120, they gather, they pray, they cast lots, and they determine who replaces Judas. You know, I also find it very interesting that in the next chapter, after they receive the Holy Spirit, um, no one comes up and says, we were wrong the way that we picked Matthias. No one says, mm, my bad, I'm sorry, oh, we, we should have done that differently. Nowhere in the rest of the New Testament does anyone say Matthias was the wrong choice. They, God doesn't get after them for doing this. This was the best that they had at this moment. Now, it is true that Matthias, this is the only time he's mentioned in Scripture, he just disappears uh, from, from Scripture. That, that is very true. Uh, now, tradition tells us that he becomes a missionary to Ethiopia, but that's just tradition, not necessarily historical facts. But it's also true that most of the apostles disappear from Scripture after this, right? That Luke's narrative turns and focuses on just a few. Uh, And so what in the world do we do with this? 
right? I mean, what, I mean, this is just a bizarre, interesting little passage, and I want to thank Aaron for giving me such a unique passage this morning, right? And the question becomes, what do we do with it, right? This, this is what they did. Now, what do we do? What is our takeaway? What, what is the biblical truth that, that we can apply to our lives? I think there's a couple of different things, but I want us really just to kind of focus in on verses 14 and 15 for just a couple of minutes. And to repeat it, verse 14 says this, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. They were in one accord. They devoted. How could they trust this game of chance? Because they were all single-mindedly focused. They were all devoted. They were seeking God. So even though this game of chance may seem extremely random to us, their faith was completely focused where it needed to be. Upon Jesus Christ, upon God's will, upon, hey, God, you're going to help us with this. And they didn't have the Holy Spirit, so that made total sense to them. But their hearts were in the right place. Seek God. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, right? And I love this. It says, Peter stood up among the brothers. And I think our translation misses something here because we kind of get, well, he was just among the group. But that word is very unique. The Greek word for together is homo thuadon. Sorry, my Greek's not awesome. Um, it's actually where we get our English word for harmony. They were in complete harmony with each other. It means, literally, this word, a being of one mind and one passion. Peter didn't just stand up in the meeting and say, hey, we should do this. He determines and understands the one passion, the one heart of the community, so he articulates what the one community is thinking. The one heart is thinking. We're praying. We're seeking God's will together, not just physically, but together in one mind, one heart, one passion. They're living out what Jesus tells us in John chapter 17, right? The oneness that Jesus desires. The oneness that he wants, the unity, right? They're experiencing it. Not just as believers, but as a a family of believers. They belong to each other. Being of one mind, I think, is required for strong, authentic community. And the church is unified in their prayerful seeking of God. And that's what gives them this confidence to to cast these lots. It's their faith. They're in harmony. They pray together. And so as I I began to think about that, I, I just began to ask those same questions, the who, the what, the whys, right? What would it be like... For the family of church project, 120, 150 people, whatever size you're at, what would it look like to come together in one accord, being complete and total harmony, and devoting yourselves to prayer? What kind of changes, right, would happen? If you're just sharing with each other so deeply, And so honestly about your life and your struggles, your hopes, your dreams, what you're going through, such deep harmony that you trusted each other at an authentic level where you trusted the scriptures so deeply and that when you prayed together, and prayers are powerful and effective, when you prayed together as a family of one mind, how would you each change? How would your church family change? 
How would the families and the people that are in your sphere of influence, how would they change? How would our city change? How would our nation change if just 120 people would come together in one unity and pray? Well, I tell you, we have an example right here. Because the truth is, every single one of us in this room is a product of 120 people gathering together in prayer 2,000 years ago. Those 120 people devoted to one another in complete and total harmony, seeking God, trusting one another, praying that God's word would go to the ends of the world and that it would last forever and that people would become in personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You and I are the answers to their prayers. And how many people could be the answers to church projects' prayers? How could we change the course of the world? By uniting together in prayer. I mean, can you imagine what would happen? Well, our example here, and you're going to read it next week, not to take any thunder away from Aaron next week, but next week, these 120 people get anointed with the Holy Spirit, and they go out and they present the gospel really for the first official time, and 3,000 people come to faith. Can you imagine your church goes from 120 to 3,120 overnight? Man, we need some new children's workers. Man, we need some more nursery. We need some pastors. I mean, I mean, can you imagine how crazy that must have been? I honestly would like to imagine it. I would honestly like to experience it. I would love to see it. There are thousands and tens of thousands of people right here in our city who do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. By your prayers, you are his witnesses. By your life, we can make that big of an impact. I think it'd be amazing. Jesus tells his disciples, Matthew 18, verses 19 and 20, he says, I say again, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven, where two or three gather in my name, there I am among them. See, there's something special that happens. James, the the younger half-brother of Jesus, says that prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective. That's true. But what happens when all of a sudden you get a bunch of righteous people together? Jesus says something special happens. And when those people are of one mind, of one heart, they are in that harmony, and they take that challenge, and they just begin to pray, uh, our prayers become more effective. They become more powerful in agreement. It's just the way that it works. So I want to challenge, and I want to encourage Church Project to take prayer so personally and powerfully. That together as a family, you can be of one mind praying together about whatever Christ has laid upon your heart. So I'd actually like to put this into practice. I'm going to ask you to do something Aaron's probably never asked you to do. Would you please stand for me? And I want us to hold each other. I'd love to form a circle, but I don't think that's going to be possible in this room. So if you could just grab hands to the person next to you. Let's just create a giant chain across the aisle, whatever. Let's come together in one heart, one mind... And let's pray. And whoever's in charge of the lights, if you wanted to dim them, you're more than welcome to do that. Um, Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just come before you right now as your children, as your church, Lord God. 
We pray, Lord, that you'd knit us together even stronger than we are. Lord, that you would help us to be of one heart, of one mind, that there would be such harmony in this community, that that in itself is powerful and effective. And then, Lord God, you tell us that we are your witnesses. And so, Lord God, we want to be people that have that spotlight shining on us, that we can just say, hey, look, if you want to know that Jesus is real, look at my life. Look what he's done. Look at, we're going to live different because we are different. And Lord God, we want to pray that your anointing would just fall on this community, Lord. And that you would just do amazing work. Father, we want to pray in the mighty name of Jesus that, that the people that we'd come in contact with, they're just in our sphere of influence, whether that's a stranger we meet at King Supers or a close family member, somebody we have class with or whatever, Lord, we pray that we would be that example, that we would love them, that we'd invite them into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that your gospel and the salvation message would just explode out of this community and to have people around it, Lord. We pray, Lord God, that thousands of people in the city of Greeley Tens of thousands. In fact, Lord God, we're going to go even farther. We're just going to ask for the entire city of Greeley to come to a personal relationship with your son, Jesus Christ. We're going to ask that right now. In harmony, in complete agreement, as one mind, Lord God, we come before you asking for your movement to happen, Lord. And that the churches in the city, Lord, would we come together in open arms and welcoming people and saying, let me tell you about our Jesus. And Father, would you transform and change lives, Lord? And would you begin right here, right now? We love you, Lord Jesus. It's in your precious name that we pray and all of God's people said, amen. 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 Thank you.